Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Travis Snyder. Travis played 15 seasons and 630 games, patrolling the outfield for three Major League Baseball teams, including your Toronto Blue Jays. Travis loved Toronto, but spent the majority of his time in our city struggling with the pressures, anxieties, and expectations of being a can't-miss Major League Baseball prospect. After multiple starts and restarts with multiple organizations at multiple levels of pro baseball, Travis retired in January 2022, closing the book on a career that didn't meet unrealistically high expectations, but was rewarding and meaningful for him in so many other ways. Beyond the stat lines and the memories, Travis walked away with a perspective that only perseverance through adversity can provide. As much as he had to work on his game, he also learned the value of working on himself. Welcome, Travis, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am at my home in Washington State. Uh, we got sunny weather here, so life is good. Uh, and just enjoying time at home with the family and getting the kids off to school and, and doing the dad thing. Well, on that note, if I may, how is your family? How's everyone doing? And, and it sounds like you're busy around there. Yeah, real busy. We got uh, six, three, and one boy, boy, girl. So we are full time action all the time in the Snyder household, and uh, just enjoying the process of learning how to be a parent every single day, uh, and all the wonderful uh, reminders that parenting will give you as to the things that personally I'm continuing to pursue as far as my development goes and and what I'm trying to provide for my family. Well, that's fantastic. I can imagine uh, how much your time is uh, being taken up. It keeps you young, right? Yes, it does. It keeps you busy. <laughs> and you did make me a little jealous. It's uh, I'll give you the update from here in Toronto. It's a little cloudy. We're still in that kind of hoping for spring coming. Uh, you mentioned the sun. Uh, what's Washington State like these days? And that's where you're from originally. Yes, born and raised here, so had my roots here and, and kept my roots here. Uh, it's in the upper 50s, low 60s today, so we're, we're tickling spring uh, and getting that sense that barbecues and, and campfires and things are, are on the horizon, so it's exciting. I like it. That's what I want to hear. Well, with your permission, we're going to go all the way back, get the Travis Snyder story. Obviously, you just told me where you were born, but why don't you describe exactly where you were born and talk a little about your upbringing. Yeah, I grew up in uh, just north of Seattle, Washington, was born in Kirkland, uh, famous for Costco, Kirkland Signature. I don't know if yep. they have that in Canada. Sure but, do. Uh, we were, you know, a family of four, grew up in uh, the suburbs, uh, started playing, you know, youth sports at a really young age through the YMCA, uh, spent a lot of time in the YMCA organization where my mom worked, uh, boys and girls clubs, a, normal, a, a number of youth programs that were provided in this area. Uh, and my parents really looked to get me and my sister and my group of friends engaged in sports. And so it was a, it was a, a wonderful childhood growing up with so many friends and family and a community of, of sports that we, we kind of grew over time. You know, and, and throughout my personal journey, uh, my parents, as, as I've discussed before, they, they battled different demons throughout my childhood and teenage years, which, uh, you know, as I've learned in, in adulthood, has an impact on the way that you wake up and view the world. And that was something through... Uh, the vehicle of baseball, I was able to process and avoid a lot of those things in different ways. And I think as 
as time has progressed, I look back on my childhood, you know, through a number of different lenses, one with a lot of gratitude, as I said, you know, for what sports and community provided me. Um, but also, you know, a lot of lessons that I've been able to learn is, in terms of what my parents experienced in their childhood and how that affected my childhood. Um, and, and what I experienced with, you know, my mom getting sick at a young age and, and things that have been documented in the media. So there was a lot of good and a lot of bad and, and something that I, I've taken the last few years to really dive into and, and go back through uh, a lot of traumatic experiences that I was unaware of. Um, that I was carrying with me and was affecting the way that I went about my business as a baseball player, as a father, as a husband. Um, so that's been kind of the journey I've been on is going back to the beginning uh, and unpacking a lot of these things and, and recognizing how sports was such an important vehicle for me. Um, but as it led to, and I talked about in a few different interviews, you know, this identity crisis that we all go through as professional athletes, and I think more importantly as human beings. And that's something that as a former retired professional athlete, I recognize the opportunity to speak about these things and, and the, the movement of mental health is such an important um, piece of progress in my mind for us as just human beings to be able to have these conversations and share stories that people can relate to, whether they play baseball or a different sport or uh, or involved in business or whatever. I just, I'm starting to see all the the parallels, right, within different spaces and different cultures of, of how we as human beings were experiencing this life. And, and I think that's something I'm, as I have three young children and I watch them grow and, and what they're experiencing on a daily basis, that's really my motivation now that I'm done playing is to provide a better opportunity for my children, right, which I think is every parent's goal at the core. Yeah, well, so many lessons learned and so much you can pass on. Uh, as you say, Travis, you were a big athlete. You played both baseball and football in high school, and you did persevere through some very difficult times, chosen by the Toronto Blue Jays, 14th overall in the 2006 Major League Baseball Draft. What was the buzz leading up to draft day? And maybe you can talk about what your actual draft day was like. The buzz was pretty crazy. Um, we grew up playing on a lot of successful teams uh, as a team, won a lot of state championships and national championships. So Success on the field wasn't wasn't new. Um, I, I like I said, my dad was a, a dad that went to work early and came home early so that he could spend time with me in the yard and uh, practicing whatever sports season it was. And and those are the memories I take into you know those adolescent years and then into professional baseball is some of the best memories I have. Uh, and realizing how foundational um, those opportunities are for us at that age to, to get repetitions in, right? And I think people want to talk about talent and they want to talk about um, perseverance and all these great things. But I, I think if you look around the kids that are advanced, right, at any sport or any activity, playing an instrument, whatever, they've had exposure to these things at a young age. And, and my dad was a softball player, not a professional baseball player, but we grew up in a, in a baseball family and saw how uh, sports and, and community could really be bonded around this, uh, th that group of people that comes together as a family for the season. And, and that's something I was fortunate to be able to experience, right, through 15, 16 years of playing professionally. I got to meet a lot of cool people from different countries and different parts of the country and spend time in a different country and do all these wonderful things that, you know, culturally speaking, being a, a kid growing up in the suburbs of Seattle, I, I never would have expected to get those experiences through playing baseball. And I, and I look back and, and really am grateful for all those relationships that I got to develop through the game and through all the other sports I played. And you remember that phone call? I assume it was a phone call that told you you'd been drafted by the Blue Jays. Yeah, and we had, like I said, probably 12 to 15 of those guys that I grew up playing with. Uh, family was there, sister, parents, 
Um, but a lot of the second parents, the dads, um, the moms that supported me through all the ups and downs, um, we were over at a buddy's house. Uh, you know, don't tell anybody we did pop a bottle of champagne, even though we weren't of age. It's not like we went crazy on anything, but celebrated the moment uh, and, and was able to do that with the kids and, and best friends. And I'm still friends with those guys today and still spend a lot of time on the golf course and in group chats. So um, a real special moment for us, kind of a, a culmination of 10 plus years of just grinding together um, and being able to celebrate that success as a group was a lot of fun for me. And I kind of had a two week window, I think it was from signing to graduation to actually reporting uh, where I wasn't really allowed to do much because you can't, you don't want to get hurt. So, you know, I showed up to uh, Pulaski, well, went to Florida first and did the whole um, physical intake process. And then, you know, next thing I knew I was living in Pulaski, Virginia in the, uh, I think it was a Motel 6 or, or uh, not a high-end motel with two other guys. And, you know, this was my life now as an 18-year-old young man playing professional baseball away from home. Well, uh, you can be honest, Travis. When you heard you got drafted by a Canadian team, what was your first reaction? How much did you know about Canada and, more specifically, Toronto? I mean, I grew up relatively close to the border here, uh, about two hours from the border. So went to the Peace Arch, grew up, you know, visiting Canada a little bit as a kid. Uh, and then going to the pre-draft workout up in Toronto was really cool and getting to, at the time, take BP off JP Ricciardi and, and do some things on the field in Toronto in the Major League Stadium. Uh, got to fly to Boston and do that in Fenway as well. So that was, you know, it was a whirlwind, but it was it was an unbelievable experience at 18 years old. I'm, I'm flying around <clears throat> North America with my agent. Uh, you know, just, just left home, not for the first time, but really just being away from home without your parents and without anybody you really know other than your agent. It, it was a great experience, and, and getting to see the city of Canada was awesome. And then getting to go up there a few times as a minor leaguer for some of the award ceremonies was really cool. Just getting to experience Toronto, such a big city compared to where I grew up, uh, and, and so many nice people and so many wonderful relationships and memories I got to have up there. And of course, uh, as you know, Seattle and Toronto were both expansion teams in the same year, 77. So I guess there was some awareness of that as well. Yeah. Travis, you were so talented. Evaluator after evaluator labeled you a can't-miss cornerstone. And ahead of the 2008 season, you were rated the Blue Jays' number one prospect. And in fact, you were the 15th best prospect in all of Major League Baseball, ahead of future stars like Max Scherzer and Toronto's very own Joey Votto. Thus, on August 29th, 2008, slightly more than two years after you were drafted, you made your debut as a 20-year-old against the Bronx Bombers, the New York Yankees. You were the youngest position player in the majors. You got your first big league hit in your first big league game at none other than Yankee Stadium. Travis, what do you remember about your first game? That must have been like blow your mind kind of stuff. Yeah, it was awesome. I got to fly my dad, my sister, and three of my best friends out first class because that was all that was available and flew them out to New York for the weekend. And here we are, we're in the big smoke and we're, we're walking around a city that is much larger than one that I've spent a lot of time in before, but was lucky that I had some good veteran guys there, Johnny Mack, uh, Lyle Overbay, a few other guys that said, hey, kid, come hop on the subway with me and we'll take you and show you around. And then, you know, the Jesse Liches that uh, between him and Jeff Ross at the time played a little joke on me of what kind of uh, outfit you had or what kind of suit you had to wear on the plane. And um, so there's a lot of memories of just, you know, being wide-eyed, walking into that stadium, taking uh, out taking balls in the outfield 
and, and literally every ball off the bat, I was ready to run it down, even if it was in right field and I was in left field. And so the, the Dwayne Murphy came over, who was a good friend, coach, you know, with the Blue Jays for a long time in the minors and majors. He said, hey, kid, you don't have to go every, you don't have to go after everyone here, right? And then, you know, you got a guy like Scott Rowland who comes up to you and he's like, hey, kid, you only get one debut, so make the most of it. Enjoy it. 0 for 3, 4 for 4, doesn't matter. Enjoy every minute. So those are the big takeaways that I have from that day and just looking around and seeing that extra layer, that extra deck on the stadium. Uh, when you're out there, you're just like, man, you don't realize how many people are, are really in the stadium when you're on the field. Well, I'd be certainly remiss if I didn't ask you, Travis, to follow up on the story you alluded to. Uh, what did they tell you you had to wear as your uh, suit for your first travel to a first game? I think if I remember correctly, I didn't know if I needed to wear a jacket or not. That was the thing back in the days, if we could wear slacks and a dress shirt or if you had to have a jacket, right, to dress it up a little bit. And at the time, I went and bought slacks and a dress shirt. I had sent all my stuff home because the organization literally told me a week prior, hey, you're not going to go up. You're going to go back to AAA next year. You're going to go to the fall league. Okay, great. A week later, they're calling me up to the big leagues. I had shipped all my stuff home. And so I had to go shopping in New York and try and find something that's going to fit my, you know, 245, 50-pound body at six feet tall and, you know, have it look presentable, right, which wasn't really my style of wearing, you know, designer clothes. So it, that was an experience in its own. And then Litchie was telling me, oh, yeah, you don't need a jacket. Uh, and then I show up and Boss Ross, who had been there, you know, longer than anybody, walks up and he says, hey, rookie, where's your jacket at? And I was just, I looked at Jesse and I'm like, what, what do you mean, man? Like, this is the last thing I want to do, right, first weekend in the show is not follow the rules. And boss came up to me later with a big smile on his face. He's like, yeah, you don't have to worry about it, man. You're good. So it, it was a good little prank on the on the rookie that weekend. Got the rookie. And obviously over 600 games, Travis, so many hits. But do you remember that first hit off Carl Pavano? Oh, yeah, out in front, uh, change up, ground rule double. Got to talk to Jeter afterwards. It's It's one of those <laughs> that will be engraved in my brain for the rest of my life. That's fabulous. Now, of course, this was a small sample, 24 games to close out that season. You then had a hot start in the next season, 2009, but you soon hit a wall. And for the first time in your life, you struggled on a baseball field. A late May demotion to AAA was supposed to be a breather to, quote, get you right, but it became a real problem. You were ready to play in the big leagues. You were not ready to get sent down from the big leagues. How did this affect your confidence, Travis? My confidence was never the same. And what I've learned since, and it's taken years of processing and talking and trauma, or not trauma, therapy, and just trying to make sense of it, right? Whereas, like, I had the utmost confidence. The reason I got to the big leagues at 20 years old is I convinced everybody around me I could handle it. And I showed on the field that I could handle it. But from a maturation standpoint, I was always regarded as this advanced 21-year-old 20, kid, right? And what I didn't realize is that so much of my identity and love had been tied to the game of baseball. And being in a position for the first time in my life where somebody told me I wasn't good enough and I wasn't going to be on the team, I needed to go back down to a level that I'd already been at and already dominated to go back there and have to get more at-bats. Now, as a 35-year-old looking at it, it's like, yeah, you're 20. Go back and and make some adjustments and lock into your process and go up there and, and, and make sure that that foundation is solid. But what I didn't realize at the time is nobody could make sense of what I was processing in that moment because I didn't know how to make sense of it. And being in that position of 
I've always been the best player on almost every team. Even in spring training as a 20, 21-year-old kid, I was I was out hitting 90% of the team, right? And there was zero issue in my mind of my ability to play at the major league level. And then once people started to question that ability, not fans and people on social media, but the actual organization that I thought believed in me as to be a franchise player, right? These are all the things that are going through my head in that moment. Instead of understanding, you know, the 10,000 foot view, when you look at it, it's like, dude, you got 15 more years to get this dialed in. Like, let's not hyper focus, right? So, learning how some of the traumatic experiences in my childhood, I was diagnosed as uh, having complex PTSD, which I was unaware of, and is something that emotionally I'll get triggered and, and I can't get off of things as easily as, as maybe somebody who hasn't experienced some of the things that I have, right? And I don't think I'm unique in this world. There's a lot of people that walk around that have experienced a lot of things in their life, but I didn't realize how attached I'd become to that identity, to that that, that storyline and my ego had started to project this narrative that you're going to play 10 years, you're going to be a franchise player for the Blue Jays, you're going to be you know, the three, four hitter here in the next year or two, as soon as, as soon as they give the young kid a shot just to be the middle of the order. God, I've been that guy my whole life. And when they told me, Hey, go back down to Vegas and figure it out. I'm just like, Oh man, I'm lost. And it was something that from that point forward, because so much was invested in that identity and that narrative, my, my ego had created and listening to all the noise that was around me at the time, instead of staying focused on my process and my craft, I, I then began, you know, I, I was exposed in, in a way where I, I didn't have that unshakable confidence that everybody had put me or labeled me as somebody that could handle this, right? So the perseverance that you talk about, yeah, I persevered from it, but it was like a chink in my armor that was never right after that. And and what I realized is I never properly grieved that process. I never properly grieved a lot of processes I went through losing family and, and experiencing the things that I had gone through. So I never really knew how to, to really deal with that type of failure, right? And that was something, again, I skated through most of my career as an amateur as the best player in the team, the best player in the state, and the best player in the country. So you see a lot of bust, right? You see a lot of these guys, like even Ricky Romero is a great example of, of somebody who took three or four years to figure it out after being picked before all these guys and all these labels and all these narratives, right? That we start listening to them and that starts to then put that, that ceiling starts to come down, right? On our ability to push through and reach levels that we're capable of reaching. And, and I think that's where learning to deal with that, learning to accept that, learning to embrace that as uh, what's preparing me for life after baseball or is preparing me for where I'm at now, it's raising awareness to me as a human being of, of how this is going to affect my children, how this is going to affect my marriage, how this is going to affect my relationships. Um, and, and so that's where baseball has become my greatest teacher. Through all the off-the-field stuff that I've gone through, baseball was always that security blanket for me. And once that security blanket was gone, I no longer felt safe. I no longer felt love, right, which is like childhood fundamentals of, of what I'm into now is is we're working on a business that is going to be educating parents on how to help you build a relationship with your kid in the sport that they play. So it's a healthy relationship so that the attachment isn't to the love that's received by having a good game, right? Or having a good stat line or having, you know, all this fame and success and labels of being a top prospect or, or whatever, right? And that's what the media, that's what social media, that's what all the things that makes baseball exciting, right, for the fans is such a fine line for the players. And I think that's something that it's difficult to explain until you go through it uh, and you see some guys handle it better than others, right? But I just didn't have the foundation 
that was built on something solid because so much of that was tied to what type of baseball player am I and how am I performing on the field? Because if there's one thing I can do in this world, it's hit a baseball, right? That's what I've done my entire life. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sure people listening to this, if you play golf or you play a sport and you show up one day, it's like, dude, have I ever played this sport before? I have no idea what I'm doing. And professionals go through that on a regular basis, right? And for baseball, it's tricky because you play so many games. It's Groundhog's Day every day you go to the field. So if you don't feel like you're in a flow state or you don't feel like you're locked in with your mechanics, it's just you're constantly chasing your tail. And I spent a, a good portion of my career doing that. But I was really good at hiding it, and I'm a master compensator, right? So I'm, I'm able to convince people around me that I'm doing okay when really I'm suffering in silence through a lot of this process and putting on the good face and saying the things that the media wants to hear and, and talking to the coaches and being respectful or, or maybe at times not, right, which was some good learning experience for me in Toronto. And, you know, I'll finish with this. I got a chance to see Cito Gaston when I was up there last year for the golf tournament. I just went up and gave him a big hug, and I just said thank you because – in the moment, I was pissed off. I was frustrated. There were all these things that I wanted to blame other people, right, for what I was going through. But what I didn't realize is these guys are doing the best they can too, right? And, and yeah. until we're able to further this conversation and connect some of these dots that can say, hey, I got to take ownership for my inability to go out there and separate the emotional from the logic, right, and just be able to play the game of baseball. And that's where the roller coaster of my career became such a – a difficult thing to manage at times when those emotions are just driving that ego is just driving everything instead of what you really understand to be what what is my purpose in all of this how can i impact the people around me and how can i show up every day as somebody who's got a lot of energy and likes to talk and be a positive influence on the people around me which i i feel like i did a good job throughout my career even at my lowest points of being a good teammate and being a professional and that's why i got to play as long as i did um, but at the same time, uh, I always love the opportunities to work with the young guys, especially in AAA, that as I see them going through this whole up and down and the swings, the mentality and, and the mindset and all these things that just get absolutely battered and beaten throughout your career. And it's like you're, you're in a heavyweight fight. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got other notable Blue Jays from the field, the broadcast booth, and the executive suites, including Rob Butler, Mike Wilner, Bob Nicholson, Simon Bennett, and Nelson Millman. Go Jays Go! All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. It was a huge change for you, as you say. You're always playing to be the best, dominating, and suddenly you found yourself playing most of your career in Toronto, worrying about getting sent down. So, as you say, a completely different perspective. For the next three years, Travis, you kind of bounce back and forth between the minors and majors until you were traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates at the 2012 trade deadline, where you literally called off the field during, uh, you had a game July 30th against Seattle. Uh, you must have been shocked that you were being traded, and were you literally called off during that game? Yeah, literally in left field, literally in front of probably 50 family and friends. It was my sister's birthday. It was a really awkward birthday dinner after the game, uh, trying to figure out what the hell is going on and where I'm going to be. But, yeah, I mean, the ups and downs were crazy. Vegas was a safe place, but not a safe place for me. I I struggled a lot with the, you know, the emotional, mental side like we talked about, but found solace in being able to go to the field there and not have to stand in front of 20 reporters after every game and explain why you swung at this pitch or, or why this happened or, or why you hit a home run or whatever else. So there's a lot less pressure in AAA, right? And, and I'm sure 
real baseball, not real baseball fans, diehard baseball fans are, are familiar with the term 4A players, right? Where it's like the guy that's really good at AAA and not really, and I fought that label for pretty much my entire career. And what I've come to learn and, and realize about this now is so many guys get stuck in that narrative, right? Of, oh, I can't play at this level, but I'm the best at this level and never really look at why. And I think that was a, a big eye-opener for me as I got to play with some of the best players of our generation, the Andrew McCutcheons, Adam Jones, I mean, just nameless or countless players, Garrett Cole, um, and see the different routes that everybody took. And I think that's the beauty of sports is you just there's so many different ways to be successful. But then you, you boil it down to these just basic fundamentals that these guys were so good at executing and then the mentality of being able to stay centered. And I've seen, you know, the best players I've played with in dark moments, right, where it's like these guys are still human beings too. But being able to stay centered, being able to manage the highs and the lows, I think is one of the skill sets that I never really honed in on, right? Because, boy, I could have like a week or two or a month even that was just like I could be the best hitter in any league that I'm in. And then you start to get sped up with this idea that now I can do this over six months and you just you get out of this moment, right? That present moment that keeps you centered, it keeps you grounded where your feet are and have that ability to just lock in every day on your process and going out there and playing a game and having fun doing it instead of being so damn stressed out all the time. Well, it sounds like probably your two most memorable years were those two years with the Pirates. You had stability with them, 2013, 2014, two postseason runs. Uh, I guess those were some good memories in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I had so many good young friends in Toronto that when the time I got traded, it was really frustrating because it was Aaron Sebia, it was Laurie, it was Ricky, it was Jansen, all these guys at spring training, you name it, we hung out, right? So at the time, it was a tough pill to swallow. I went to Chicago the next morning, hopped on a flight at 6 a.m., flew from Seattle to Chicago. Uh, I remember getting in, <laughs> asking to take a nap instead of going to early BP because I hadn't slept the night before and show up and I'm wearing a new uniform. I'm in a clubhouse and the conversations are about the playoffs and they're about who we're getting on the trade deadline. It was just this whole new experience for me, right? And, and what I came to find out is we were in first place and we didn't make the playoffs. And, and what that experience taught me and I think taught us as, as, a, as a group, as a unit, uh, how hard it is to make the playoffs and how easy it is to let these narratives that we're talking about you know, on an individual basis that happen in the media uh, with the teams and organizations, how we had to really just lock things down. And I think that experience in 12 of not making the playoffs is what really propelled us into 2013 and said, hey, we're going to do this no matter what. And we're not going to, we're going to put the blinders on. We're going to put the, the, the earphones on and just stay locked in on our process. And and experiencing that with another really good young group of guys, it was blended with, you know, AJ Burnett and Rod Barajas and guys that I had played with before in my career. It was a lot of fun to get kind of that second chance at being a winning team and, and, and being a part of winning culture and, and going through that experience of uh, having lifelong friends with Neil Walker and, and, and playing with guys like Garrett Cole and Russell Martin that are just outstanding human beings right that have gone on to have just unbelievable baseball careers so we're really grateful for that experience for me and my wife um to have a ton of good friends there but to experience winning that's i mean toronto's had a nice run here over the last decade since i've been gone right which has been awesome to see but i do remember watching you know when the blue jays made the playoffs man because that was always something we talked about i was like could you imagine this city when we make the playoffs can you imagine what toronto is going to do the streets are going to be filled you know it's just going to be nuts so i was really happy to see jose and all the boys get that opportunity to just light that city on fire 
Uh, but for us in Pittsburgh, it was it was a similar situation here in Seattle. Last year, they broke that 25-plus year playoff streak, and that's what we got to do in Pittsburgh. And I think that's something from a uh, just a baseball history standpoint. I know we didn't go on and win the World Series. We weren't the best team of all time, but it was a lot of fun just being a part of that culture and experiencing winning playoff baseball. Well, what a great experience. And moving on from there, you spent some time playing with Baltimore, and then you had a bunch of different stops, Travis whether it was minors, and eventually got relegated to independent ball. You said, I am going to get back. You really worked hard, and we're making your way back. COVID got in the way. The pandemic got in the way. And you decided in January 2022, you could now comfortably, and I say comfortably, I guess in your mind, retire. And I want to read you, if I may, part of your retirement statement. It is a beautiful struggle sharing a clubhouse with 30 other dudes going to battle 100 plus times a year. I will miss that the most, but I am looking forward to being a more present husband, father, family member, and friend. How are you today as a a 35-year-old retiree? Of course, in the world of baseball, that's different than in the world of the regular world. But uh, how are you with this decision to retire, and how are you today? Well, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention in 2019, my experience in indie ball was... uh, a bit of a revival in terms of my love for the game of baseball because you don't get you. I paid to play that year. I didn't make money. I spent a lot of money just to keep playing baseball, right? Keep my dream alive. My brother-in-law at the time, I think he was 35, 36 years old, was diagnosed with melanoma. Um, my sister's husband, they had a two-year-old son at the time, and he was battling all summer. And I was battling, right? I was fighting for my baseball life. He's fighting for his actual life. And at the at the end of that summer, I remember, you know various points in time during the season where I almost decided to hang it up and just go home. And at that point, I felt like I had to ride this thing out and see where it got me. And once we got to August, we'd reevaluate. And I felt like I played well to get picked well enough to get picked up. And I didn't. And things had taken a turn for the worse with him at home. So decided at that point, what I thought was going to be my last game playing was as a Long Island duck. Flew home, spent the next three or four months um, by his side. He ended up passing uh, that year, uh, and it was terrible. I mean, watching a 35, 36-year-old man go through this with a family and, and uh, you know, obviously my sister and what my nephew were going through, but just from a perspective of life, right? I'd lost my mom already. I'd lost some close friends. I'd lost some grandparents and just kind of seen death in a front row seat. And with that, it was such a, a life-altering experience for me because I realized how much I had lost my roots and gratitude for what we have and how precious life is. And, and I, I get these reminders every few years and I, I pray it's not for another 10 or 20 years before I lose somebody else. Right. But it's a part of life. And I think seeing that firsthand and being able to experience that, that reignited my passion for the love of the game of baseball. And, and more importantly, what I felt like at the time was my life's mission, right. was to get back to the major leagues. I had this, this attachment to getting back to the major leagues, which is fine. It's a goal that I wanted to achieve, in going through that process, I had to be okay with walking away from that goal to be with my family. And then watching him go through that, it was like, okay, we're not, we're not done. You know, I'm not laying on a bed on my last breath. There's no reason why I can't give us another run. Let's see what we got. <clears throat> so that year I ended up taking a minor league deal with the Diamondbacks, went to straight minor league camp, which in terms of perseverance, you talk about ego and, and <laughs> guys that have spent their whole entire careers in major league camp like me. <clears throat> going back to minor league camp is a humbling experience, but in preparation for that season, I knew how important it was. It didn't matter if they stuck me in the, the shittiest locker in the back of the clubhouse and I never got to major league camp. 
I was going to figure it out. I was going to find a way. And I went down to spring that year and, and, and tore the cover off the ball, played really well. They didn't have a spot for me. They told me that in the beginning. They told me that three days before spring training ended. And then the day before spring training was ended, and this is a perfect time for this, right, because this is what guys are going through. Am I going to double A? Am I going to triple A? Am I going to the big leagues? What am I doing? I was supposed to go to double A and be on the Phantom DL and, and mentor players in Jackson, Tennessee, in the middle of nowhere. And I said, hey, I appreciate that offer. And when a spot opens up for me, I'll be the first guy there. And if you want me to be a bench player, I don't care. I just don't want to be on the on the DL. So fast forward to that last day. Hey, we had an injury or two. You're going to go to Reno now. It's not a long-term thing, but we're going to give you a shot to go up there. And I ended up hitting 400 for the first month of April, right? One of those months where it's just like you couldn't get me out. And, and I feel like the best hitter on the planet. And then started going through this process, right, that I've been through before, where I start getting close to achieving this goal, and all of a sudden the ego's like, whoa, 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 we're not safe anymore, right? Because there's this opportunity up here that seems like a good opportunity, but we're not, we're not ready for that. So, in that experience, it was, it was a really good season for me because I, I didn't allow excuses to, to come into play. I didn't allow any of the travel, right? You know, flying out of Reno, you leave at three, you get on a plane at five, you connect to this city. I said, I don't, no excuses, no nothing, right? The last two or three years, I've really just grinded myself down to, to just stripping all this ego and this attachment to flying private and having suits on and doing the whole big league experience. Right? This is like, I'm chasing my dream. So I'm back in the, back in the saddle I uh, ended up breaking my thumb that year and then played well enough to where I was on the cusp of being a call-up. They, they gave me an invite to spring training the next year, and I got to spring training, man, and I did not prepare myself the way I did the year before. And mm-hmm. I, I started getting in this position where I'm like, oh, man, I'm back in big league camp, and I felt like almost like a rookie again. It's like, do I belong here after everything I've gone through? So that experience was crazy. Uh, a lot of really good friends. Diamondbacks, a fantastic organization. Uh but things just didn't work out, right? I had an awful spring. I was stuck in my head. I was trying to think about mechanics at the plate during spring training. I think I got one hit and like 20 at-bats, and then spring training shut down. I'm like, whoa, I'm still in big league camp. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll survive this whole COVID experience. And then it was May. They called me and like, hey, we don't have a spot for you. There's no AAA this year. We're going to release you. Okay, I spent the next two months trying to stay in shape and get a call for spring training 2.0 and didn't end up going anywhere. So my wife and I, we booked a trip down to Cabo where she's from to go spend time with the family. Sure enough, second day in Cabo, I get a call from my agent. Hey, you want to go to camp with the Marlins? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, we've, we've already done this now for 14 <laughs> years. And my wife and I, we've, we've committed to it if we have the opportunity. So I hop on a plane in Cabo. As I got her flip-flops, a couple pairs of shoes. I have my baseball ship stuff from Seattle. That got lost in, in transit. So I'm borrowing gear at the facility down there. And, and they were great, man. I was there. Uh, in the middle of COVID, the height of COVID, when all the Marlins guys got it, and just that whole experience is just crazy, man. And, and baseball, those last couple of years, 2020 was nuts. I lasted about five weeks there, never really got hot with the bat, got released. Um, had a great experience, so even though it was just weird, man, just living in a hotel and being scared to go outside, and that just that whole experience was crazy. Uh, and then going into the next off season, you know, not really thinking I had a shot. The Braves had called me, AA Alex Anthopoulos, had spoke with my agent and said, "Hey, we'd love to have Travis come out and, you know, take a roster spot in AAA and mentor some young players and, and see see what he's got left in the tank. No promises." And like, great. So I went to uh, their alternate spring training and. Had a great experience down there. Um, once the season started, I wasn't playing very much. We had our third daughter, or our third child, which is my first daughter, uh, in Georgia. So we had our first two in Seattle and then our third. And, you know, we committed to it. And everybody's looking at us like, are you serious? You're going to go all the way across the country and try and do this? But 
My mother-in-law is uh, an absolute saint. She flew out, stayed with us for two months. Uh, and we had our third child and, you know, we're living in a townhouse in Gwinnett, Georgia. Uh, we don't have a lot of space and we got two boys with a lot of energy, you know, and I'm just looking at my wife and she's looking at me and I'm just like, I don't know. I don't think I got it. You know what I mean? At this point, mm -hmm. the priorities are really starting to shift. Uh, I'm still struggling with this whole identity of being a major leaguer who's playing in AAA and, and really at the time wasn't playing well and not playing a lot. So it was a tough decision, but I called Alex. I talked to him. And I said, hey, I think it's time for me to, to hang him up and take the offseason and reevaluate. And they were totally supportive of it. So we flew home a little bit early from the season and spent the next couple of months pondering, uh, meditating, praying, just trying to figure out what was next for me. Uh, and it was just never really got that itch to start working out, which is something I've always prided myself on as being a self-reference myself as a pace car for off-season training groups because I like to hold people accountable and get after it. And I just didn't have that drive anymore. And I knew that was, you know, one of the big signs for me that if I don't have the drive to continue to work, then – I don't have the drive to continue to keep leaving my family and, 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 and putting my wife in a position where she's got to deal with three little ones at home. And so, and just not being present. Right. And that's what I referred to in that statement is it's, it's tough even when you are a father of having kids and you're playing or you're professional or just working in any form of life. Right. It's like you come home and try and be present with your kids. You got a cell phone in your hand. You got all these things that are overstimulating you and, I was just lost in that in that that mental seesaw uh, for about a year of what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my family? How is this going to you know long term effects of what we're doing right now? What what's the risk and reward? So after time, it was it wasn't an easy decision, but I just didn't have that fire. Right, it's something that I was it was kind of a signature piece for me is having that energy and that drive. And, and once that was gone, I knew you know I, I knew I'd rode this thing until the wheels had come off uh, and. I hadn't checked all the boxes I wanted to. I hadn't met all the narratives and, and expectations that I had created and people around me had created for myself. But I'd also entered a space where I was working with a therapeutic life coach who's now a partner of mine in that business I was talking about uh, and really went on this deep dive, man, of, of what I had experienced uh, losing my father that year. I'd lost him prior to the 2021 season and, you know, kind of the last form of, of parent figure I had left in my life. Um, and that was that was a big shift and for me it was becoming the man of the family and really even though i had supported my dad financially for my entire adult life right that's not something i've talked a lot about publicly but i've kind of been the parent in that role but when you lose your actual parent right that's a big shift and and that was something that took me you know and still in processing right of how to 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 wear that that badge of pride and honor to be the head of your family um, and, and be the ultimate decision maker and provider for everything that's going on around you. So it was a crazy couple of years. I wanted to touch on that because I felt like in terms of uh, overcoming things, you know, those were two pivotal years and leading up to that decision, right? Where in 2019, I felt like I was this close. And then 2020, it was just, you know, a lot of haymakers and a lot of blood getting spit out and getting back up in 2021 and saying, all right, let's see what we got. Laid it all out there. Uh, you know, looked my wife in the in the eyes and said, "Babe, I don't, I just don't, I don't love playing the game anymore. I, I love the game of baseball, and I'm learning to love myself again outside of just being the baseball player. And I need to focus on that because this is what's going to have a lasting impact on our family, our kids, our our our, our future. Right? Just trying to get back to the big leagues isn't going to solve our problems anymore. Well, what a roller coaster! But you were able to retire at peace, and here we are as we approach April 2023, Travis. What are you doing with your time these days? 
So I mentioned we have a company we're in the process of building out. Uh, we have guidebooks that were written for parents and for coaches, and then we'll be working on a player's guidebook as well. Um, and we're really targeting the conversation around youth sports and really trying to help empower parents to be the hero in that relationship. Because I think so many parents want to provide the best for their kids. They want their kids to have all these opportunities. Some have alternative motives they're not even aware of, right? They're projecting some of their own stuff on their kids. Uh, but I think it all comes from a place, right, that we really want to help this next generation. And I think with everything that's happened in, in our world over the last few years, uh, it's led us to a point where the, the conversation of mental health, right, the conversation about identity, the conversation about how to form a healthy relationship with the things that we love in our lives, right? And that's something I'm very passionate about and spent a lot of time learning about. Uh, my partner, Seth Taylor, who wrote uh, these guidebooks originally for soccer, we're in the process of rewriting these now for baseball and for multiple sports. So we'll start off with some guidebooks and then we'll be getting into a, a podcast that I mentioned before, uh, online content, really targeting parent education, coach education, and player education, and, and trying to teach people uh, as well as carry on a conversation of continued learning for ourselves, right? Because I, I always want this to be an evolving process, a conversation of how do we get better collectively within these sports that we love so much, like baseball, like hockey, like football, like soccer, right? Where the pressure that we're putting on our kids at such a young age, and we don't even realize it, right? Like we, we don't even realize when you pick your son up from, or your daughter up from T-ball and you're asking little Tommy, hey, buddy, did you have fun out there? Was I supposed to have fun? And just a little a little thing like that, right? And say, hey, buddy, how was it? Or what was the most exciting? You know, just being able to reframe conversations. Uh, and the guidebooks are pretty cool because it's an opportunity for parents to kind of revisit or, or visit, right, some potential situations that you're going to encounter in, in sports. And that's how to talk to coaches. That's how to talk to your son or your daughter after something doesn't go right because sports and, and it's one of the best vehicles to learn these types of life lessons, but so much of our value is tied up in the performance on the field, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of what is the actual process? What are we learning from this? How is this going to have skill sets that can be developed and then transferable skill sets, right? Which I'm learning as a just been a baseball player my entire life, but oh, by the way, you learn a lot of these really good skill sets as a professional athlete. How do those transfer, right? Even if you never play professional sports, what are the fundamental life skills that we can teach kids, that we can teach parents, right, through sports? Mm -hmm. Instead of putting all the pressures on what's your son ranked in the state or how many state championships as you want, I, I experienced all that stuff, right? And, like, my message for parents is, guys, I went to the top of the mountain. I wasn't a Hall of Famer. I wasn't an all-star. I didn't play 10 years. I didn't make 100 million bucks. But I played in the big leagues for quite a while. And, and overcame a lot of things in my career and realized the fulfillment that I've been seeking, right? I think the fulfillment we want all of our children to experience is not going to be just because they're good at a sport, right? And that's where so much of it gets tied up and who's the best player. And instead of, hey, what is the personal journey we're all on here as parents, as coaches, as players? And then being able to really form a conversation, curriculum, educational pieces around that to support people, right? Instead of shaking our finger and saying, you're the problem, you're the problem. We're all the problem, guys. We're all human beings. we got these demons and we got to talk about them. we got to deal with them. Well, that sounds great. Sports is life. And as you say, the lessons learned in sports, we can apply to life. Where can we follow you on social media or for what you're working on with these guidebooks in your new business. So I will be launching some information on the business here in the next month or two. We'll be getting social media channels built out and doing that whole content piece. But in the interim, still on Facebook, still on uh, Instagram, still on Twitter. 
I'm trying to remember Lunchbox Hero 23 is the Instagram and then Twitter is Lunchbox Hero 45 because that was the TO days when I started that still repping the four or five there and uh yeah, I mean, Facebook, I don't know if people are still on Facebook. I, funny enough, I had about a thousand <laughs> Facebook requests from over the last 15 years. I just stopped responding to Facebook requests. And I'm not trying to brag here, but I just started accepting all these people, right? And I saw a ton of people from Toronto. I'm getting random messages like, dude, I think I sent you this like 10 years ago. I'm just like, awesome, man. I hope all is well. But it, it's funny, man, because you, you think back on those periods of time where, again, fame, fortune, all these things. I wasn't the most famous person in the world. I wasn't the richest person in the world. But you start to get a taste of these things, man, and how how weird, how crazy it is just to have fans. Like that whole concept of, of other human beings that root for you outside of your own family and friends, right? It's just a, it's a weird concept for any human to be able to experience that on, on any level is just crazy. Well, I think it's great. If you are uh, in Toronto and you are on Facebook, look for a uh, response. It might be coming late, but it ha- it will be coming from Travis. <laughs> and of Sounds course, good. on that note, the nickname Lunchbox. How did you get it? Revolves around food. I was uh, <laughs> high school hanging out with the older kids. I won't go into too many details, but I-, I tend to eat a lot. And they took me to Taco Bell one night and they it was $35 worth of Taco Bell. And this is back in 2005, 2006, not with the inflation prices now. Right. So, I mean, this was a lot of, a lot of low quality food that I put down in about less than 10 minutes. And they look back at me and I was a middle linebacker and a fullback, right. It was just kind of like a lunchbox type of position. I'm, I'm kind of box shaped as I've learned at six feet and 240 pounds, right. You kind of shape more like a box. So the lunchbox thing started, uh, in high school and then the hero was added on by AJ Burnett when I was playing guitar hero all the time and was really good at guitar hero so then I just kind of parlayed it into the lunchbox hero um, and then you know obviously 45 is just the numbers the numbers that I wore that's great well I have to uh, update you Travis that Rogers Center formerly Skydome has undergone extensive renovations so the next time you get up here to Toronto you'll be able to uh, see a whole new look to the place that you played yeah, I'm excited. Actually, you know, it's worth mentioning, I'm going to be representing the Toronto Blue Jays at the Hall of Fame Classic in May, so I'll get to put on the Jays uniform. I'm going to ask them to send me the early 2000s, mid-2000s version, but we're going to be uh, playing in that game in May, and then I'll be up there for uh, the Jays Care Charity Golf Tournament, and we'll hopefully be up there at least one or two other times. And I says, as we start to get this business rolling, I definitely want to revisit the contacts I have in the, in the greater Toronto area as well as the country of Canada, right? Because I think uh, having experience living and playing, you know, for the Blue Jays and how wonderful the fan base is, right? Not just in that massive city of Toronto, but the entire country of Canada. I think that was one of the coolest experiences I can look back on and say I got to travel to Saskatchewan and BC and do some different things on the, the Jays tour. But you just realize how Canada as a country is just, as an American, you don't grow up learning all kinds of things about Canada. But living there, boy, it was such a wonderful experience for me. Well, we certainly welcome you back and look forward to seeing you again. And I want to thank you for your time today. It was great meeting you, hearing all your stories, and I want to wish you continued success going forward. All right, Andrew. Thank you very much. And to the listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Travis Snyder, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Come on a journey like no other. 
where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.